we're in this series called Restless. What is it that keeps you up at night? And uh, this morning we're going to talk about living paycheck to paycheck. And when you live from paycheck to paycheck, it can keep you up at night. It can make you restless. Let me, let me ask you a couple questions. Do you have much month at the end of your money? Do you have a financial gauge that is on empty and your budget running on fumes? Have you stretched your last dollar to the max? Is your financial expenditure so scary that your dollar bills look like this? <laughs> so many people today live from paycheck to paycheck, and it keeps them up at night. Now, there's a lot of research that's been done on the financial conditions of our nation and our American households. And as you know, studies reveal that 75% of all statistics can be misleading. <laughs> so let me see if I can summarize for you this morning just a little bit of the many statistics that seem to be coming down about all of this. Here, here we go. Uh, according to a survey of 1,000 adults, Fewer than one in four Americans has enough money in their savings account to cover at least six months of expenses in the event of a loss of job, a medical emergency, or some other kind of unexpected event. <clears throat> Meanwhile, 50% of those surveyed have less than a three-month cushion, and 27% of American households have no savings whatsoever uh, after paying for Childcare, houses, cars, utilities. Many people say there just is nothing to put in a savings account. There are over 47 million Americans on food stamps with virtually no liquid savings whatsoever. The median net worth for young Americans is actually a negative. The median net worth is a negative because so many of our students are coming out of college with debts with regard to their student loans. 60% of college students, freshmen, college freshmen, max out a credit card in the first year. The class of 2013 graduates averaged $35,200 in debt. That's average across the board for these. Some have less, but some have lots more. 59% of young people say they wish they knew more about how to handle finances, which is a sad commentary on those of us who are parents and grandparents that maybe we haven't done our best to help teach and communicate our kids about this important part of life. 40% of consumers surveyed said they live paycheck to paycheck, which is up from 31% just three years ago. 40% of our populace lives paycheck to paycheck. And nearly half of Americans say they are only one pay paycheck away from financial disaster. Here's another startling finding to me. According to a recent study conducted by SunTrust via a Harris poll, about one-third of U.S. households earning at least $75,000, earning that much together, say they are living on the edge financially. And even households that make as much as 100000 are finding themselves pinched, with one in four earning 100000 saying that they sometimes live paycheck to paycheck. According to release, recent studies released by the American Psychological Association, higher financial stress levels have worrisome health 
complications. In other words, when you are stressed out about your finances, it messes with your health and, and other behavior. People with financial stress are twice as likely to watch TV and surf the internet more often as a means of escape and are twice as likely to eat more, drink more, and smoke more than those who are not. Financially stressed out people go, they start skipping the doctor because they believe they want to save the money, therefore they don't take care of their health issues because they can't afford to pay for those health issues. And they say, at least a third of the respondents say that their financial situation prevents them from living a healthier lifestyle. Now, some of those may be excuses for just not handling our money well, but it goes a long way to say that there's a lot of problems when it comes to financial situations in our country. From the Anxiety and Stress Management Institute comes this observation. In relationships, financial stress can translate to increased fighting between partners, especially about money, controlling behaviors, criticism of other partners' spending habits or financial worldview, or a breakdown in communication about household finances. And we often assume that financial stress doesn't impact the kids, but it does. They may not understand it as financial stress, but they see the stress between mom and dad, and they will then react in ways that maybe aren't verbal, but they'll react in ways such as it'll change their eating behaviors. It'll change their sleeping behaviors. Sometimes they act out at school, and sometimes when there's financial stress in the household, kids will begin hoarding their change and hoarding their food for fear that things are not going to go well. Now, I never cease to be amazed at how clearly the Bible speaks and how practically the Bible speaks to such things. God knew from the very beginning of time that the things that would bother us the most, that would complicate our lives the most, are those things that we possess. And certainly our income is one of those things that we possess. And so I just want to take a few moments this morning and talk about some of the areas that, that the Bible addresses on how we use what God has entrusted to us. Here's the first thing. God speaks to our ability to earn. The church at Thessalonica, when Paul writes 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, he's dealing with an issue that's come up at the church. Now, somehow the Christians at Thessalonica had sort of misunderstood what Jesus said when he said, I'm, I'm coming again. They thought he meant, I'm coming right back. So a lot of them quit their jobs, and a lot of them just kind of sat around waiting for the Lord to return. And Paul writes them in 2 Thessalonians to say, that's not what we told you. And this is what we read in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. It says, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. That's a pretty strong rule, isn't it? We hear that some among you are idle. They're not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. Now, obviously, there are people in any culture and society, there were at this day and time, who could not work. They were physically enabled. They were in they were incapacitated in some way, which made working impossible. Paul and the early church and the Jewish synagogues in the time of Jesus were very ardent in helping those who couldn't work. That's not the issue. Paul's issue is you don't have any right, biblically interpreting the, the coming of Christ, to stop working and sit around and wait. If you don't work, you don't eat. Now, that's a strong reminder to us that if you're capable and able to work, then you should work. 
Yes, I know sometimes it's hard to find a job and you're in between, but that doesn't mean you give up on finding a job. And, and notice this, that honest, honorable work is a biblical principle. It's a biblical command. Our responsibility is to provide for our families and for those in need. Elsewhere, the New Testament tells us that the person who does not provide for the members of his family is worse than an unbeliever. The Bible takes all of this very seriously. And if you don't work, how can you ever share with others who are in need? This morning on the way out, <clears throat> there are boxes at each of the door, uh, and this is a part of our Habitat offering. We've been telling you about our commitment to raise $25,000 to go with this build that we're doing for uh, locally connected with Habitat for Humanity. And so on your way out this morning, if you are, feel so led, if you brought your gift with you this week, drop it in the box there. It's just a way, it's a great way, terrific way, that we can help somebody else out in this community. It's, it's doing something that makes a difference. You saw just a minute ago when Todd was sharing about this trip that they took to Myanmar and, and these Burmese children and how loving they are and that we were able, just a little bit of giving, we were able to give a gift that helped build this dormitory completed the first floor, and put on a second floor to make life there a little bit easier and more palatable and to bring more children who need a home. Little things like that. But if you don't work, you, you, you have nothing to share. And, and, and that would not be a good thing. Work is fulfilling. It is satisfying. God wired us that way. Now, I know you can overwork which is just as bad on the other side of the coin. There are some people who are workaholics. That's not what the Bible talks about. The Bible always talks about balance in these areas. But to not work, there's something about our own self-esteem when we are not contributing to our own life and health and needs. And so it is satisfying. Even though Adam and Eve lived in a paradise garden, they were still commanded to work the garden. They had to take care of the garden. So work has been a gift from God since the very beginning of time. Don't rely on handouts if you are capable of working. And then notice how Paul ends this passage. He says, never tire of doing what is right, which brings us to the next biblical principle, and that is our work must be ethical. Not just any job will do. It's got to be a job that has has ethics to it. Proverbs is prolific with all these words of advice on good versus bad. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 4 says, lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. Proverbs 10 16, the earnings of the godly enhance their lives, but evil people squander their money on sin. Proverbs eleven eighteen, the wicked man earns deceptive wages, but he who sows righteousness reaps a sure reward. In Proverbs 21, verse 6, a fortune made by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a deadly snare. A godly work ethic ought to be a given when you're talking to Christians. I've just lived long enough to know that we don't always translate biblical principles to the reality of life when it comes to the things that we have, when it comes to the money that we earn and use. We don't always transfer that ethic over we don't always conclude and understand and consider the consequences. Now, what, what do we mean by ethical work? Well, you may not run a meth lab in your basement or your garage, and I hope you don't. <laughs> but there are other ways to be unethical in our work. Let, let, let me give you a few examples. Taking advantage financially of another's ignorance. 
overcharging a customer for a product or service, misrepresenting the value of a particular product to that particular person, not giving an honest day's work for an honest day's pay, making a promise and not keeping it. Those are unethical work behaviors. According to salary.com, the average American employee, are you ready for this? The average American employee wastes more than two hours a day at work, costing companies in America nearly $8 billion in lost wages. Do you know what the number one waster is? Social media. And the West Coast states are the biggest offenders. Stay away from California. May I suggest that you'll never be free from the guilt in your life if your income is generated in an unethical way. You may be able to fool other people, but you cannot fool your own conscience, and you certainly can't fool God. He knows. Here's a simple rule of thumb. Never do anything to earn money that would warrant an apology. If your parents or spouse would be embarrassed by what you do to earn a living, that's a good sign it probably isn't the most ethical kind of earning. So make the wise and mature choice. Earn your money with integrity. The Bible speaks clearly to that issue. Here's something else. God speaks to our ability to spend. Um, Jesus told this story. Now, Jesus told it in the context of the cost of discipleship. But the story has applications to everything. Just listen and you'll understand. Luke chapter 14, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. And every one of us in this room can think of places that we've seen, building started but never finished and wondered what happened there. Who started out so foolishly and was not able to finish the project? We get that. Now again, Jesus' context is that of the cost of discipleship. But you can't read that without understanding there is a cost and consequence to our financial decisions as well. How foolish we are to spend without counting the cost of that spending. Uh, and we are, we are a funny people. College, uh, Connecticut College psychology professor Stuart V. wrote a book entitled Going Broke, Why Americans Can't Hold On to Their Money. And he uses several illustrations in there of how we just don't process things like we ought to. And he gives uh, several examples of which I'm going to share three with you. And, and they're, they're based on misunderstandings or mistakes that we make. For instance, mistake number one, generally speaking, generally speaking, not everybody, but generally speaking, we spend more if we use a credit card than if we use cash. Uh, students at MIT were offered a chance to buy Celtic tickets at an auction. Half of, the, half of the room separated out was told they could only use cash to make their bid, and the other half was said, you can use a credit card to make your bid. Now, that neither side knew what the other one was doing. So when the bids came in, those who were spending cash had one bid. Those who used a credit card outbid them more than two times the value and the price of what the other group had bid. You see, the loss of cash out of your pocket is immediate, and we are much more careful how we spend when you have to take out your bills and you have to pull them out of your billfold or 
pull them off the, 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 the clip. It's no more costly than credit. It's just easier to put it on the card and forget about it for a while. So we spend more when we use credit cards than when we use cash. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10 and 11 reads like this. Those who love money will never have enough. How absurd to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. Haven't you ever seen that to be true? The more you got, more friends you got to help spend it. So what's the advantage of wealth except perhaps to watch it run through your fingers? Buying things on credit using a credit card makes it easier to watch it run through your fingers. Mistake number two, generally speaking, we spend more when we think extra money is a bonus. This time, a group of Harvard students were each given $50. Half of the group was told that the $50 was a rebate on the tuition money they'd spent. The other half was told, it's just a bonus income. You just got a bonus check. And then they examined later how the groups spent the money. Of the group that said it was a tuition refund, that group had average spending only $7 out of the 50. The group that it was told, it was, hey, this is just bonus money for you. They spent $31 on the average out of the 50. There's something about if we get money back that was once ours, we're a little bit more careful about it. If it's just bonus money, hey, we can spend it. But if you're, tr if you're having trouble with finances, bonus money is still money and should be handled with the same kind of care. Mistake number three, we spend more when, when the savings percentage seems greater. <laughs> Stanford University students were used for this one, and they were given a hypothetical situation. The first situation was, <clears throat> this department store has a calculator for $15, but there's a store that's 15 minutes away that has the same calculator for $10, a 33% savings. How many of you would drive the 15 minutes to the other store to buy that calculator for $10 instead of 15? 68% said they would make the drive. Second question was at a department store, there is a coat for $125. But at another department store, 15 minutes away, the same coat is on sale for $120. Still a $5 savings, still a 15-minute drive. How many of you would go to that? Only 29% would make the drive. Same savings, same distance, just the percentage of the sale was different and made all the difference in the way the people looked at the money. You see, we can trick ourselves in a lot of ways when we aren't careful. So how do we help count the cost? How do we sort of stem the tide on some of this stuff? Well, let, let me just give you some very practical things that I've seen work in my own life, that I've seen work in the lives of other people that I know are steadfast and, and true. Here's the first one. Develop a budget and live by it, all right? Sit down, consider all of your expenses, figure out what it will cost you. When I was in college, um, my freshman year of college, I made $25 a week as a part-time youth minister. And that, that $25 I had to last me that week. And so I had to carefully do it to, to budget that out. That's when I started using the envelope system when I was in college, where you take part of that money and you stick it in an envelope and you save it so that by the time you got to the end of the month, you could pay whatever bills were coming up. I still use that system. Elsie and I started using the envelopes when we got married. We still use that system to budget. Now, we don't use the actual envelopes anymore. We do it on ledger sheets, but the principle is the same. A certain amount of money goes aside every time I get paid, every, every time we get money, so that we have the bills covered when they come along. It's simple, but it works if you'll stick to it. If you have trouble financially, the only way to survive is by learning how to budget. Keep it simple, 
but stick to it like glue. <clears throat> Here's another thing. Limit what you spend. If money goes through your pocket like you've got a hole in your pocket, limit how much you carry. Put yourself on an allowance. And if you cheat with that and say, okay, I ran out of my allowance, I'm going to give myself a little bit more allowance. Have somebody else give you the allowance. You turn your money over to somebody else who will not let you have more than your allowance. And if you can't, if you can't not spend, don't use a credit card. Get rid of your credit cards because they're only going to get you into trouble. Have somebody help you who can manage it well. And that brings me to the next one. That is, if you're married, figure out which of the two of you may be the best with handling money. Now, maybe both of you are. Maybe neither of you are. But somebody's going to be a little bit better with keeping the budget straight and keeping the checkbook balanced and all these things else. So if you're the one that does that, you make sure your spouse knows what's going on so that both of you have an understanding of what's happening in your finances. And by the way, if neither one of you are good, then that brings me to the next point, And that is, find some professional to help you. Okay, there are a lot of professional help out there. I can, I can point you in a lot of different directions. Uh, Bill Butler teaches uh, one of our weekly adult classes here at church. He's often taught the financial peace class. He is a Dave Ramsey certified financial counselor. Uh, doesn't sell any financial products. He's just a financial counselor. Works through the church here, makes appointments here. If you're having a problem with your finances, can I suggest Bill Butler? He would be a great person to help you sit down and work through some of these issues. David Duncan comes periodically and does seminars here. Uh, he will help people plan their estates. I don't know how many people in our church have already benefited from Dave being here. That's a good thing. And we have lots of people. We have lots of men and women here in the church who do sell products, who sell insurance, who sell investments in these different kinds of avenues for you to invest or save or use your money rightly. I'd trust any of them here to do a good job because I believe they are doing it out of their Christian work ethic. So if you need a professional, let us know. We'll help point you in the right direction. Uh, if nothing else, just remember Dave Ramsey's seven steps and start, start working toward these. Establish a $1,000 emergency fund that you use just for that, emergencies. Number two, pay off all your debt except your house. Work really hard toward that. Number three, put three to six months of expenses in savings so that you can get by in, in the time of disaster. Um, number four, invest 15% into retirement. Number five, start a college fund for your kids or your grandchildren. Number six, pay off your mortgage early if you can. And number seven, start saving so that you can give to those who have needs. There's a lot of people around that will help. Just don't try to do this alone if you're struggling, okay? And remember, if more is going out than is coming in, you need to make some changes. Okay? You can't keep doing the same thing over and over again and expect different results. So, one of two things. Either learn to spend less or find a way to earn more. I like this quote from Thomas Stanley. Approach every major purchase in terms of the hours of work required to pay for it. Before you go out and buy some big ticket item, just sit down and figure out how many hours you're going to have to work just to buy that might help. Here's the last thing. God speaks to our ability to save. Uh, look at Proverbs chapter 6, verse 6 and following. This is one of my favorite pictures in the book of Proverbs. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? Don't you like the way that sounds, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of your hands and rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. 
I am fascinated with this part of God's creation, this tiny ant that we so over, over uh, look all the time that runs through our yards and sometimes our houses around. The ant is a fascinating creature. They, every ant has a job, and they do their job for the good of the community. There are soldier ants that protect. There are gatherer ants that bring in the harvest. There are herder ants. Did you know that? They have herds of aphids. There are gardener ants. There are hanging gardens in the colonies below ground. There are nursery ants, ants that are designed to take care of the larvae and raise them until they get up and take their role. The whole colony works for the good of the colony. They work hard, and they make sure that everything works well. The ant saves as it prepares for winter. Sometimes we misjudge the concept of trusting God as if I don't have to do anything. God says, you put me first and I'll take care of you. Yes, the Bible does say that. But it doesn't mean that we aren't responsible for doing what we need to do. If a man doesn't work, neither let him eat. If a man does not provide for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. It's a partnership. You do your best. And God will come alongside of you because you are doing your best and because you are following his principles. And when things happen that are beyond your control, he will provide and take care of you. Proverbs 13, 11 says, dishonest money dwindles away, but he who gathers money little by little makes it grow. Don't underestimate the power of savings. Uh, it, it, you just think of this example. If, if when you were born, your parents set aside $1,000 in an, an account that earned 7% interest, and you say, where can you go and get 7% interest? I don't know. If you find a place, you let me know. I would like to know where that place is. Today, you can't get 7% interest uh, in a savings account. But if you, if you invested at 7%, by the time you retired at 65, that $1,000 investment would be worth $100,000. It, you cannot underestimate the power of saving. Little by little, it will grow. Sometimes it feels overwhelming, so much so that we throw up our hands and conclude, why bother? Why don't, you know, why start? Well, just start. It'll make a difference. It'll make a psychological difference if you start putting back a little bit as the Bible teaches. Start small, but start. And those subtle changes will help in the long run. I like what Andy Stanley wrote. I've concluded that while nobody plans to mess up his life, the problem is that few of us plan not to. That is, we don't put the necessary safeguards in place to ensure a happy ending. You see, folks, everything that we have, every, every possession that we supposedly own really belongs to God. It's on loan to us. And one of the best means of honoring him is to be faithful in the use of what he has entrusted to us. So guard your reputation as a manager of God's gifts to you. The principles we've been discussing form God's plan for wise financial living and a happy ending to the story. But I'm, I'm here to tell you this morning, God wants more than a happy ending financially. Uh, that's just part of it. And as a matter of fact, when it comes to the big picture, financial happiness is on the low end of the totem pole. Being responsible is, is a good thing. But God wants more. Proverbs 21, verse 1 and 2 says, A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. John Hancock was president of the Second, Second Continental Congress in 1776 when the Declaration of Independence was adopted by the original 13 colonies. John Hancock was also the first to sign 
the Declaration of Independence, and you know how the story goes. He signed it with large flowing letters, supposedly, so that King George could read it without his glasses on. At a glance, when you take a glance at the Declaration of Independence, the only name you can read at a glance is John Hancock's. With that signature, he made a name for himself in American history. During the Revolutionary War, King George offered amnesty to any American who would lay down his arms and stop fighting, except for John Hancock and a select few others. When he signed that document in those large flowing letters, when his name was clearly the biggest one on the page, he knew that he had sealed his fate and made a name for himself in American history. Proverbs reminds us that a good name, making a spiritual name for yourself, is, is more desirable than riches. So make a name for yourself in this world that honors God. And even though you may not be rich by the world's standards, you'll be rich in the eyes of God when your name and reputation reflects Him. And never forget this, folks. The rich and the poor enter this world the same, naked, helpless, and unaware. They leave the world the same way, naked, helpless, unaware. You don't take a dime with you out of this world. It's only for your use here. But you do, you do take this with you, or this does follow you, even beyond death, and that is your reputation. The name that you have made for yourself. Is it one that reflects the King of kings and the Lord of lords?